Welcome to the podcast of Apostolic Lighthouse Tabernacle. You can find out more about our church at lighthouseofmaslin.com or join us for worship Sundays at 11. We pray this message will be a blessing to you. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, in as Pastor mentioned, uh, in circumstances, I uh, wish were different. I will say, in the middle of that, of disheartening, it is truly a treat to be with you in service tonight. And over the years, I've had a couple of opportunities to preach here and there and it is without question a high honor to minister here and I don't take that invitation lightly so very 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 grateful it's been a joy in recent times to be in some interactions uh, with Pastor Strange and uh, he's a veteran Purpose Institute guy and I am as green as the grass. And uh, he, we're in meeting together, and I glean quite a bit from his thoughts and insights. And I'm inspired by the campus you got working on, and rooms there, and building there. I walked in with my mom this evening, and I looked over in that new property, and I noticed <clears throat> some yellow barriers across the parking lot, evidently to keep young people from excessively addressing the parking lot. It's funny to me because pastor's dad used to do that in this parking lot. And uh, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Bishop, it's an honor to be here. Pray that our ministry today and in every day would do you proud. Honor you highly. Uh, you can be seated. I will. Uh, I'm going to share with you something tonight uh, that I, I'm still working on. Um, I, I have enough material to have a message for this evening, but I'm certain it's going to be three or four more messages before it's all said and done. So there may be circumstances or there may be something that I talk about this evening that you, you think to yourself, well, he didn't put a bow on that. And I, I still wonder about that. And what if this? Well, those are all great questions. Write them down, mark them down, study your Bible, search it out, have a good Bible discussion with somebody. These are good things. So I'm here tonight just to send you home studying and hope that you receive that well. I will always be indebted to Lighthouse Tabernacle here. My kingdom foundation was laid under the influence of, of this people. My soul's land was cleared and leveled. 
here, spirit and truth were mixed and poured into my life. It's from this, this group, disciples work together, spreading in my life and others the concrete of faith, applying it liberally and uniformly and seeing to it that, that my foundation was sure. Now, over the following years, you know, I'm responsible for my life's building. But if this building ever turns out less than I'd hoped it would be, I'll never be able to blame my foundation. And I thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. My Christian life is, has largely been in a pro-Christian environment. Thanks, man. Make sure it's folded right. <laughs> Here at Lighthouse, tremendous, tremendous environment, Pentecostal environment. Under pastor's approval, I headed off to Minnesota for some time at, in the great cold north with Bible school students and another great church and a great Pentecostal environment. After that, pastor in Toledo, Ohio, my wife's rearing up church, invited us to come there, and with bishop's approval, we accepted that invitation and went there. After a few years there, as your pastor already mentioned, we ended up in St. Louis, Missouri, there at Apostolic Pentecostal Church and our pastor, Stephen Williford. And beyond the churches, the areas where we were brought up, were largely Christian, Midwest, church-friendly areas. Even those in these regions in the time of my upbringing who didn't practice faith, they would accept it. There were some general Christian principles at work. They would tolerate it. Sure, there were individuals here and there who would lash out at you for following Jesus and by and large, though, my experience was mostly in what we've come to call a Christian nation. And then, nine years ago, we moved to the greater Seattle area. It is not a Christian area. It is one of the most unchristian, unchurched areas in all of North America. Disciples are woefully outnumbered. Faith is outright attacked. All manner of sin and vice is not just tolerated, but celebrated and promoted and facilitated, encouraged. Just last Sunday in the Seattle Times, one of North America's great newspapers, a lot of Perlitzer Prize winners out of that paper. Just last Sunday, they allowed a guest opinion piece from a high school sophomore, and the title of her piece was, Why Schools Should Teach Gender as a Spectrum. A 16-year-old boldly declaring that she and her peers know more about gender than the adults around her. She's thankful for the way her school honors her chosen pronouns. She's glad that already in her high school, 
She's able to use whatever bathroom she wants and facilitate other things as she chooses to do. And I'm using the word she because I don't believe in gender spectrums. She writes, however, in that opinion piece in the most prominent newspaper in my state that she says more should be done because of the microaggressions that she faces in her high school. Those are the kinds of ideologies that are facilitated and promoted in our Sunday paper. A stamp on the block that this is what we approve of. Now, my heart breaks for a 16-year-old who is so deceived and confused by the fallacies of the enemy in this world. And yet I live in a place that is predominantly directed by that. I am our church. We are a missions work in an ungodly land. Except we still live in the United States. It, I'll tell you, it's not the USA I was accustomed to. And perhaps in those short comments, you sit here thinking, wow, I'm glad I don't live where you do. But if, if the Bible's true, Paul said, know this. In the last days, perilous times will come. Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus made it abundantly clear. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will be offended, will betray one another. They'll hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. In the environment that Paul and that Jesus explained, all disciples will become rarities on this planet. All nations, even the United States, will come up and rise up against those who are people of faith. We will go from enjoying as Americans, being in a Christian majority. If, if scripture holds true, we will not always be in the majority. We will not be tolerated and approved. It will not be proudly declaimed as a Christian community. And I, I just wonder, are we ready for that? Are we ready to live in the minority? Are we ready to live in a hostile land? I've heard comments by disciples in my area, folks who live where I live. Now, there's a lot of reasons it's tough to live there. Cost of living is ridiculous. But you can also make a whole lot of money there, so it's relative. People thinking about moving out. I'm moving out of here. And our state's unique because on the west side of the mountains where I live is the most, uh, it's the most beautiful, the most spectacular, and it is the craziest in terms of values and thought. If you cross the mountain range and go on to the east side of the state, it's like Oklahoma. It's, it's exactly like Oklahoma. Very conservative, very rural, very farmland, four-wheelers, cowboys, the whole deal. So there's folks on my side of the mountain. I'm going to pack it up and I'm going to move to the other side of the mountain. 
You know why? Because it'd be good. Wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be good to live around people who have the same values that you have and to live in neighborhoods where people think like you think? And, and wouldn't that be great? And my response was very straightforward. I said, it will, it will, it does. It sounds great. You know where that place is? Heaven. That's where that place is. And when you and I desire to live in a place where people think like us and act like us, that is the calling of a spirit within us saying, Come, Lord Jesus, I am ready to make heaven my home. That is that sense that is calling in us. So we might ask, why hasn't Jesus come back? When he decides there's too few of us to make a difference, then he will come and take us home. Why hasn't he come yet? Well, he's hoping. He's waiting. The opportunity is for all those that are unsaved to still have a chance. And so it makes me wonder, until Jesus returns, what happens if sinful areas are abandoned by disciples? Who's going to be their witness? If my neighborhood, if my workplace, if my... Pick your place. It's just become so sinful. It's just become so ungodly. It's just become so evil. It's just become so wicked. I understand you. I, I get it. I, I've been there and done that. What happens to that place if the righteous leave? We'll read about it in the scripture. When we're resurrected, when we're taken up into glory, you can read about what happens. And if you and I back out of the places that need God, then we're deciding for God when it's time to leave them alone. I wrestle with that. I, I, I struggle with that. But if we stay, if we remain, if we stay in these outnumbered areas and we accept missionary status, what's that look like? What do we do? Should we be fearful or should we be faithful? I guess here's the pivotal thing that is racking me at this point in time. Our... Are the folks around us who don't follow Jesus, are they our enemies or are they our mission? Let me ask you something. When was the last time, when was the last time you had dinner as a family, had a meal together? Think about that. Now, I'm, I'm going to go through a bunch of questions right now. So it's going to do one of two things. It's going to help us all kind of start thinking and getting on the same page, or it's going to irritate you. One way or the other, I have your attention. Is it easy to make family meals happen anymore? Does it happen often? What, what makes a family meal enjoyable? What makes a family meal challenging? As you're sharing a family meal, I wonder... Are you likely to be engaged with the others that are around the table? Or are you basically everybody's eating at the same location while our minds and attention is somewhere else? And if you compare today to years past, would you say that you have the same number of family meals that you once had? Are there more? Are there less? And what is it? What is it that competes against our family meals if you read some commentary, it seems that there are 
are people that would rather avoid family meals and gatherings as much as possible. Without fail, come Thanksgiving, Christmas, other holidays, I'll read some post, some editorial, some commentary by somebody who dreads going to a family meal because there will be a conversation that is difficult and challenging and they just don't want to deal with disagreeable subjects. Maybe, maybe that's the kind of person you are. Why is that a problem? Why is that? Why aren't we really willing to engage conversation with people of differing opinions? How come we as a society are less willing to understand others' views and to share our own? Why is it that we're not as a community, as a society, we don't, we don't want to consider how others can help me improve and how I might help them improve. Now here's the way it feels to me, and maybe this is just because I live on the left coast, but there are times when it, it feels like we gather ourselves into our different camps and we pitch our tents with others who mostly think like we think and value what we value, and we do that to the exclusion of other camps who think differently. It can be as harmless as things like, are you in the Browns camp or the Bengals camp? Is it the Cavaliers or the Pistons? Is it the Buckeyes or the Bearcats? Well, when it comes to automobiles, is it buying or leasing that your camp is in? Is it a gas-powered vehicles or electric or some mix of the both? Are you in favor of the youth and the future? Or are you in the camp of the elders and are we in the camp of new music or the camp of old music? Are we in the camp that I want to learn via discussion or are we in the camp that I got to learn via lecture? Camps. Y'all with me? These camps. And we get into our camps. Here's the thing that over time, if we follow society, if we go down that pathway, if we stay in this divisive environment and we fall into that pattern, we get hunkered down in our camps, we start to view other camps and camps of different thought as our enemies. And the more we become entrenched, the longer we hunker down in our camps, the more difficult it becomes to associate with those of other camps. And you know what we might decide? I'm just going to stay in my camp and I'm not leaving this camp. And COVID restrictions made that real easy. And what about if someone in our camp engages someone in another camp? We might be prone to accuse them of treachery. Did you see? I, I heard she had coffee with so-and-so who's from that other camp. I heard he was laughing and carrying on with that guy from that camp. If this exists in society, how does it affect conversations between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between siblings? Do camps affect the conversations between fellow disciples even within this room? Do camps hinder or even eliminate relationships between disciples and non-disciples. I wonder, are we, living, are we living in a unique time 
Or has there been a time like this in the past? And does the Bible contain examples of what I'm talking about? And if so, what does the Bible have to share with us? You know, I don't know about this group anymore, but the Pentecostals I see most often, we have a strong conviction in food. We like food. We enjoy our meals. You know, the first meal in the Bible is early in the book of Genesis. King Melchizedek has dinner with Abram. That's the first meal in the Bible. Not long after that, Abram serves a fancy dinner to three angelic visitors outside his tent. And they fellowship over a meal. On into Genesis, Jacob steals his brother Esau's birthright over a meal of bean soup. And then he steals the blessing over a meal of wild game with their dad, Isaac. You check out scripture, there's other meals. Jacob the deceiver has a very tentative meal with Laban, his father-in-law. They're kind of a dinner for a bit of a truce. And the last big meal in the book of Genesis is when Joseph's brothers make it into the land of Egypt and there's a big old banquet where they're reunited as a family and celebrated over a meal. Meals in the Bible, there's many different contexts in the Old Testament, different reasons for meals. Of course, there's family meals, but there's meals to ratify covenants. There's meals to celebrate military victories and to accompany the anointing of kings. There's meals because of a birth and because of a marriage. Shared meals in the Old Testament were intentional and they were purposeful. They involved interactions on occasion beyond family, perhaps business associates. But we also find in the Old Testament that meals distanced people from others. There are some meals that are actually instituted by the Lord himself. The Lord said, for sure, you need to have three festivals every year. Unleavened bread, Passover, first fruits, Pentecost, and the in-gathering. you got to have those three every year, year after year. Big old feasts, the original potlucks. Got to have those every year. In Exodus, the Lord explains how these meals are going to make them different from the nations around them. Listen as I read. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat. If a family's too small to heat an old animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. The animal you select must be a year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the time that it's sacrificed. You must slaughter the lamb or the young goat at twilight. You must roast the meat over fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. It must be roasted over fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Here's your instructions for eating the meal. It's not just the diet. It's not just the recipe. But here's how you dress when you're having this meal. You got to be fully dressed. You got to wear your sandals. You got to carry your walking stick in your hand. And you got to eat fast. It's the Lord's Passover. Now, now, those items highlight this ritual, this purity, and this 
indeed what they were supposed to do. Now, that every meal wasn't like that, but that caught on into other meals. There were very specific things that were practiced in the Old Testament and among the Jews. And let's be candid with all the things that you must do for those meals and you can't do for those meals and the kind of food you have to have for those meals and the way you got to dress for those meals. Your neighbors aren't coming. The people around you who don't know God, they're not coming. The Gentiles, the people of the land, those who are not Israelites, they're not coming to that dinner. The meal separated. Now, there were some forms of hospitality. There was a resident alien coming through the land. You could feed them. Sometimes a total stranger could be invited to create new friendships. But the Old Testament comparatively contains few references to meals that built bridges between those who were previously estranged. Even less do we find the command in the Old Testament to love your enemies or the illustration of warring parties eating together. In fact, when you look over the whole of the Old Testament, your overall impression from the majority of texts is that meals in the Old Testament were to separate and to draw boundaries. And only those who belonged could come. The outsider wasn't welcome. In fact, we don't find a single example in the Old Testament of an uninvited guest. A random person just coming to dinner. Neither do we see faithful Israelites seeking out the ritually outcast or the morally outcast of their society to include in table fellowship. Now between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know this, there's about 400 years it took place, the intertestamental period. And in that 400 years, when there isn't any scripture recorded, the Jews took the ritual cleansing and the meals even beyond what the Lord instructed. They took it to the next level. How you washed, how you dressed, what they, the next level ritualized. And as they did this, it further separated them from their surrounding community. It sure, it gave them a chance to put in and, and to have deep, deep understanding of who they were. But in this intertestamental time, as they drew boundaries, you only had dinner with the right kind of people and the right kind of food. And day after day when you're doing that, you have an understanding. I am different. I am special. I am separate. And there's nothing wrong with those thoughts in and of themselves. Except the barrier of the cleansing and the eating put this high barrier for mingling or, or assimilating with any other groups of people. And so the Jewish people in the Old Testament up until the time of Christ, they did a great job of preserving their camps. They conquered, read the Old Testament, they conquered people. You don't read a lot about converts. Backslidden Jews repented, but where's the evangelism to surrounding societies? It's not what's happening in the Old Testament. The Israelite camp was good in many ways. There are a lot of good things that we take from the Old Testament. It's a teacher and a schoolmaster. We know that. But the Old Testament wasn't what the Lord desired. It was not sufficient. There needed to be a new plan. needed to be a new organization. There needed to be a new direction. And so the New Testament and the new approach was dawned on to this world. 
So the atmosphere that Jesus walks into. He was reared in a Jewish family. And didn't have dinner with any of their non-Jewish co-workers. Their kids didn't play necessarily soccer in the yard together unless you were a fellow Jew. The differentiation and the defining differences. You couldn't have people over to the house to eat because they were ritually impure. And you couldn't go to their house to eat because they were ritually impure. And so this dividing line was there. This separation was there. Now Jesus made his purpose very clear. You probably heard it preached over Easter weekend. Jesus says very clearly, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it, oh, to give his life a ransom for many. Well, listen to this in Luke chapter 7. Jesus' words, not just about his purpose, but about his practice. Here's what the Bible says. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. I hope somehow you can see the transition that Jesus wreaks on these people's minds. For centuries, they don't hang around with anybody but their own kind. For centuries, they only have dinner and fellowship. And yeah, they have business transactions. I'll trade you some grapes for that cloth that you have right there. I'll trade you some goats for some of those uh, donkeys that you have right there. There were business transactions. They saw them in the square. But where it came to where they got to know people and they got to understand people. And they weren't just interested in conquering them on the battlefield, but knowing them as human beings. And Jesus wanted not just to know them as humans and as his creation, but that they would come to know him. And what did he do? Let's go get a bite to eat. Centuries of ritualistic washing, wearing just the right clothes, sitting down just the right way at the table, Sitting in a certain order, lesser to greater. Come on, read your Bible. It's all in there. There's a lot about food and a lot about order in the attitude. And Jesus comes in. Yeah, I'm not worried about that. I'm going to read it. Luke is great. Many examples of Jesus having dinner with folks. Jesus, his first miracle is what? At the wedding of Cana. It's a big feast. It's a food deal. And what's his miracle? They run out of wine. The fellowship is fixing to be over. We're out of food. And Jesus says, read it. Go get the pots, the water pots for cleansing. <laughs> you all spent all your time, instead of making sure you had enough to have good fellowship, you were all concerned about washing your hands. Get those jars. Put them with water. 
and turned them into wine so the fellowship could continue. Jesus ate with 5,000 and then with 4,000, miraculous. In the first one, he eats with 5,000 people. And in that one, the audience was predominantly Jews. So Jesus and his disciples are on the hillside. There's 5,000 Jewish people. There are not cleansing waters and vessels for everybody to wash up. And Jesus starts breaking bread and fish in his dirty hands. And then he hands it to his disciples. And with their dirty hands and their dirty baskets. Everybody following me? He takes it out to the 5,000 people and feeds them all. And they're all scratching their heads. What in the world? We're starving. We need to eat. But this guy is totally ignoring all the stuff we've been following for years. Not, follow me here, not New Testament stuff he's up against. But the Old Testament stuff that didn't work. No converts, just conquests. He said, we can do something better. 4,000 people in the second miracle, they were predominantly Gentiles. Same deal. He breaks loaves and fishes to himself and to the disciples. And here's the difference. Gentiles in the crowd are saying, this Jew is eating dinner with us. He's having dinner with us. What's going on with this? In fact, the food and the situation is so interesting. If you call it out and you check it out in Mark chapter 2, it's even involved when Jesus calls the 12 apostles. He went out to the lake shore and taught the crowds that were coming to him. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. This is Mark 2, 13. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Verse 15 is what's important to me. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. What are they saying there? What's getting written down? All kind of folks from other camps. But when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, here's what they said. Why does he eat with such scum? That's a new living, pretty direct language. Why does he eat with such scum? You know what it is? For years they've gotten into their little camp. And now when they look at people who don't know the Lord, now when they see people who are away from Christ, they don't look at them as the mission. They look at them as the enemy. They're thinking in Old Testament ways and not in the way Jesus has brought to the territory. When Jesus heard this in verse 17, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but to those who know they are sinners. Boy, if you get nothing else and make no other notes tonight, I hope you'll write this down. Sinners are not the enemy. They are our mission. Those in the other camps around us, they're not our enemy. They are our mission. In modern words, those that were stuck in the Old Testament. What does it say? And what's Jesus doing in their camp? What's he doing hanging out with those folks? 
Why has Jesus invited them here? Why is he making them comfortable? Why, why did he ask one to be his disciple? But you read through the Gospels. Here's what you find. Jesus didn't abandon his fellow Jewish brethren. He had dinner with them too. He just also ate dinner with the Gentiles. He had meals with his family. He kept doing that, but he had meals with friends and meals with people he didn't even know. He had meals with the rulers of the land and he had meals with the downcast. He had meals with those who were disciples and followers and he had meals with those who were enemies. Many times the scribes and Pharisees asked him to dinner, come on, we're having a banquet, come on over. And Jesus said, that'll be fun, I'm going. But they were contrary, they didn't want to follow him, but he didn't give up on them, he said, I'm going. He ate with those that were unaware of him, those that were repentant to his ways, and those who were clearly defiant. He had dinner with the ritually unclean and the morally unclean. He dined with sinners of every sort. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying Jesus engaged in others' daily lives, and he did it through meals. He got personal with people. He got close to them. No longer were the sinners and the unbelievers and the people away from the Lord to somebody out there, this general group of folks who don't know but the Lord, those that are just out in a camp somewhere. No, he brought it home to individuals. He brought it home to faces. He brought it home to names, and he had dinner with those folks. He got close to them, sat side by side at tables over drink, and he did it without fear. When it came to meals, the master turned the religious world on its head while they were secluded, bunkered down. Y'all aren't good enough. Jesus, eating and drinking, eating and drinking. He ignored the old dietary barriers. He overlooked their cleansing rituals. Meals under Christ would no longer separate or censor. He dined with all. Because the unsaved weren't the enemy. They were his mission. He accepted dinner invitations so he could extend salvation invitations. He accepted dinner invitations so he could extend salvation invitations. As you might suspect, I've been doing a good bit of reading and studying on the subject, and author Craig Blomberg observes this. As to the meaning of Jesus' behavior, the unifying theme that emerges is one that may be called contagious holiness. Jesus discloses not one instance of fearing contamination from the wicked or the impure, rather moral or ritual. Rather, he believes his purity can impact them. And he hopes that his loving kindness toward them will lead them to hear and follow his call to discipleship. Rather than acting like sin was contagious, Jesus lived like his righteousness was contagious. He lived like his holiness would pass on to people, like his authority could change lives. In the Old Testament, meals separated and, and people came to God at a temple if 
they were good enough to get in. But in the New Testament, Jesus showed us meals were shared and he went to people at their tables. I believe the pivotal difference is a simple one that we quote all the time. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. Again, the words of Jesus. Things are different now, folks. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the language that I've been using this evening, Jesus was saying, By the Holy Spirit, you have power to leave your camp and not be afraid anymore. You don't have to worry about sin rubbing off. My power is within you and greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. No longer live in that Old Testament hunkering down, but rather live in the power of my spirit that I have given you for this purpose and for this power. In the Old Testament, there's fear. Sin is going to infect God's people. And I'm not tearing down the Old Testament. That was God's plan. I'm not tearing down the Jews of the Old Testament. They followed God's plan as they had it. But that plan was not perfect. I'm not being critical. I'm reading scripture. And in the New Testament, it's going to be different. In the church age that we're living in, Jesus said there is faith. You don't live in fear. You live in faith. God's people will proclaim his righteousness. And when we live in that faith, Jesus led the way for you and I, his followers, to leave any of our comfy camps and go to people everywhere. You know, I say this tonight, if you're in the house or wherever you're listening now or in the future, if you've ever had an experience that gave you the impression, whether intentional or accidental, where Christians dwell in an exclusive camp, where you didn't feel welcome to come to Jesus, I apologize. Forgive me and any disciples for acting that way or giving that impression because when disciples act exclusive, we aren't behaving like Jesus. He didn't isolate himself. He was available to every human being to hear his gospel. All are invited to follow him. Jesus wants every last human being to become like himself. He came for everyone. If you're hearing and you thought it was exclusive and you didn't have a chance to become, forgive us and don't let our faults keep you from letting Jesus Christ and his power into your life. And I speak to this next group. If the enemy has leveraged this whole camping thing and he's told you, well, that might work for those people, but it ain't working for you. Your camp is too far away. You pitched your tent in a place way, you, you don't have enough room in your tent for Jesus to come to dinner. 
You're, you're, there aren't clearly marked signs. Your, your tent isn't on Jesus' GPS. He's not coming to your place. Can I speak to you that that is a lie from the pits of hell? No one is too broken. No one is too unclean. No one is too hopeless. In this house right now, if you know of someone that you're concerned about, that you think needs God but fears they can't get to God, would you raise your hand right now and I want you to begin to pray for them. I want you to begin to pray for them by name. There's somebody that you think, you know what? I bet they feel like they can't come back to God. I bet they feel like they're too dirty. They're too removed. I want you to pray right now in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Ghost that that deception would be removed, that that confusion would be taken away, and somehow you have a soon opportunity to speak into a life. They're not too far gone. They're not too far away. Their tent is not too difficult, but Jesus... Jesus Christ is alive and well. He's interested in every human being. He's interested in every soul. Come on, call on the name of the Lord just for a moment right now. Talk to the Lord right now. In the name of Jesus, Lord, take away those blinders. Lord, by your power and glory, remove that deception, Lord. Remove that confusion, oh God. Allow there to be a revelation and a beacon, oh God, of your love and of your power and of your anointing and of your truth into their lives, Lord Jesus. Move, oh God. Stand with me and we're going to pray for ourselves here in a minute and I'll be done. I want you to hear something. Jesus realized that the change he was bringing about was difficult for the Old Testament folks. Jesus knew good and well that they'd been spending centuries doing what they were doing. Practicing what they were practicing. Acting the way they were acting. Believing they were doing their best and doing the right thing. Jesus knew what he was asking was going to be tough. Yet, he expects the change. He knew it would be tough. That's why he told them the purpose of the Holy Spirit that they would receive in Acts 2. It will give you the power you need to do what I'm asking. But the enemy sits around giggling his little sinister yelp when you and I believe the lie that following God's word means isolating from those who need Christ. Who am I to play God and to pull away from those who need salvation because I've decided they're too far gone? If that was God's will, we'd be out of here. But we remain as salt and light in this world. 
trusting the Holy Spirit means connecting with those who need it. It means associating and sharing. You see, following Jesus' purpose, it's become clear to me, means reproducing his practice. I don't know, preacher. Some pretty evil people on my job. Some pretty wicked people in my neighborhood. And that's where we go wrong. People aren't the problem. Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But against principality and power. Spiritual wickedness in high places. The New Testament church hasn't stopped conquering and battling. We just don't do it with swords and shields. We do it with prayer and the word of God. We don't just battle humanity, we battle principality and power and spiritual wicked in the high places. And we ought not confuse that with the people. Pray every one of us tonight driving home can't help but stare at homes. Look at apartment buildings filled with people don't know Christ they are not our enemies yeah I I think they vote this way I think they're for that amendment I think they have this value system no that's the principalities and the spiritual wickedness that's what we battle there the people are our mission here's what I know human beings often have to hear a message more than once read your Bible after three and a half years with Jesus and seeing him having dinner with all these crazy people in terms of the Jewish mindset in Acts chapter 10 Peter is about to have an invitation from somebody from another camp and Peter is not ready to have dinner at that house all those years of watching Jesus And Peter is not ready to have dinner over there. The Bible says it was about noon. Peter was hungry. Dinner was being prepared. He falls asleep on the roof and the Lord gives him a dream. You know the story. Three times the Lord drops a revision of food that he would not eat as a Jew. Three times. He spent three and a half years with Jesus. And now it's for Peter to put it into play and to go to somebody's house for dinner and tell them about Jesus, an invitation to salvation. Somebody who's hungry. And Peter ain't ready to take the invitation. But the Lord visits him in a dream. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God is patient with us even when we are knuckleheaded. Keeps bringing that vision back. Tells me the Lord's patient with us, and it tells me this sometimes I need to hear it again and again and again and again. 
not just hear it again, but live in it. Peter finally got the message. He goes to Cornelius' home. Baptism of the Holy Spirit falls. They baptize him in the name of Jesus. How did that happen? It didn't happen in a church like this. It didn't happen in, in this camp. It happened in their camp. And Peter took an invitation. You know what? If this means anything to you whatsoever and you feel like it resonates with you in some way, shape, or form, would you just, I want you to pray in this place, Lord, don't give up on me. You got to bring the dream three more times. Keep bringing it. Would you pray that way? For my city, for my neighborhood, for my coworkers. Come on, people of God all over this place. Lord, don't give up on me. I'm sorry I've been seeing it like camps. There's something in my frail humanity, Lord. I, I haven't fully got it. I, I keep seeing it as us and them. I, I keep seeing them like the enemy and, and swords and shields and strategies and overcoming and victories. And Oh, Lord, I want to see your plan and your vision, oh, God. Show me, Lord, the dream again, Lord. Drop down that tarmac, that sheet, Lord. Help me to see it, oh God. Have compassion on me. Lord, let your grace minister through my heart and mind and spirit. Work in me again, oh Lord. Bring it to me again, oh God. Oh Lord, you had patience with Peter. Lord, you had compassion on him. Lord, it worked. He finally got it. I want to be like Peter, oh Lord. I want to hear the call of the centurions near me. I want to hear the call of the Corneliuses nearby, Lord. There's, there's people been praying to know what I know. There's people that are desiring to have what I have. Help me, oh God, to look beyond my camp. Come on, that's a good first wave. Take it a little farther right now. Come on. Be serious with the Lord right now. What's that look like? Who's that look like? Come on, throw some names out to the Lord right now. Throw some faces out to the Lord right now. Who is it that you see on a regular basis that needs to know Jesus Christ? Who is it that you've been around, you've been kind of scared of? Who is it that you look at in the neighborhood and you say, those people, those are saints in the future. They're sinners now. They're not the enemy. They just need to find Christ. We need to see them differently. It ought not be those people in that camp who think that way and live that way. Oh, we pray against the principalities and power, but we pray for the people. We reach for the people. We engage the people. Father, we put the net into the sea and we just don't have one kind of fish. But we have every kind of fish. Lord God, that net sinks into the water. We have fish of every kind. Lord Jesus Christ, we put our nets into the water and we do not discern from the surface what we're going to catch, but you've made us fishers of men.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for this powerful message. You've used your vessel. You've used your servant. But it's indeed your voice that is speaking to us. We want this to be a harvest church, Father. We just do not want to sit at our table and eat our food and feel satisfied. We see the crumbs on your beard and the fish scales in your hands, sitting with the 12, watching a multitude of Gentiles and Jews and of any every town, every race, and every people feeding on that bread. Lord God, thank you for giving us that bread. As the patriarch Job said, God forbid that we should eat our morsel alone. Dear God, I don't want to eat my bread all by myself. It's the finest of the wheat. It's the greatest thing to eat. But I do not want to eat my vessel. I do not want to eat out of my vessel alone and eat my morsel alone. Dear God, give us a vision. Somebody came to me when my soul was empty and gave me bread. Lord Jesus, unto me who am less than the least of all saints was this grace given that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. God, I'm the least of all your saints, but I've got just as much bread in my being as anybody else. Thank you, Jesus, for this precious bread. Thank you for this precious bread. And we want to share it with the hungry hearts of others.